You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. I'm so excited about this episode. Uh, This guy is a real hero of mine and somebody I've seen make a huge transition from the world of professional sports into the world of professional speaking, which is interesting in and of itself, but there's a certain flavor that he started off with. He went from the NFL to being a stage performer and performing Broadway type shows and off Broadway and producing his own show and becoming a playwright. It's just like, how do you even have the the, the connective tissue for those things. So we're going to talk about that today. And a lot of the things that he's going to share with you really translates over into your world as well, because he's taken these insights about really not just becoming somebody who's average at what you do, but being world-class. And he's been able to instill this in different arenas in his own life and also training people to do the same thing. And so uh, if anybody has perspect- the perspective on being allergic to average and actually becoming world-class, it's our guest today. So I'm really, really, really excited about that. And part of being world-class obviously is making sure that we're fueling our bodies the right way and really making sure that we're optimizing our nutrition. And, you know, it's been a little hot lately, you know, and I've been out there putting in my own work, you know, on my body and training and also just that mental labor and creating a uh, new project that I'm working on right now. And so I've been going pretty hard with the red juice, all right? And I'm not talking about the red juice from when you're a kid. When I was a kid, red juice meant Kool-Aid or, you know, we were kind of broke, so it was Flavor-Aid for us. And this was, you know, those little packets of random artificially colored and flavored powders. You pour it into the pitcher with some water and then put that hitter of sugar. I'm talking like one, like a cup of sugar in like a two liter jug. It was crazy, crazy. And guess how much nutrition is in there? Zero. How many minerals and vitamins? Zero. And there's actually a really great comparison when we're talking about this red juice formula that's from earth-grown nutrients coming from Organifi versus something like what I used to get in high school when I was trying to not drink soda. So I would buy like Powerade with my lunch or like Gatorade. And so listen to this. With Gatorade, we're talking 34 grams of sugar 140 calories, all right? Organifi red juice, one gram of sugar, and is sweetened using low glycemic sweeteners like monk fruit, for example, that also has nutrients along with it. 11 superfoods. How many superfoods are in Gatorade again? Oh, that's right, none. And then we've got 30 calories, right? And we're just flooding our body with all these powerful superfoods, including acai, which acai, as you probably already know, it's an antioxidant powerhouse. It's about 10 times more antioxidant content than basically every other fruit out there, the conventional fruits. And this is why it puts it in the category of being a quote, superfood. And also we've got strawberry in there. We've got blueberry in there. And I want to share this study with you on blueberries. I just came across researchers at the University of Michigan published research finding that blueberry intake can potentially affect genes related to fat burning. So this is a direct nutrigenomic powerhouse that can affect genes that kind of enhance your ability to burn fat. And so it's loaded with vitamin C, vitamin K, plus powerful antioxidants and inflammation-fighting compounds 
bundled up in this great tasting red juice formula that you can add to water, shake it up, and there you go. So pop over there, check them out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. You get 20% off the red juice formula, the green juice formula, the gold, so many other incredible things that they have there. And they're just great people doing a lot of good for our bodies and for the planet at large. So head over there, check them out, Organifi.com forward slash model for 20% off. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Found the Oasis in the Desert by Die Young 120 I've only listened to four or five shows so far, but everything I heard is so great, and I feel like I'm in the desert finding the oasis of great information about health. Now the problem is there are so many shows that I would have to listen to every day. It's overwhelming. I feel so lucky to find this podcast. And thank you, Sean, for being you and sharing your priceless knowledge. Awesome. Thank you so much for leaving me that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so, so very much. And listen, if you've yet to leave a review, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review and let everybody know what you think of the show. And it could be featured as a review of the week, potentially here on the Model Health Show. So again, thank you so very much. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Bo Eason is a former NFL All-Pro, actor, playwright, motivational speaker, leadership trainer, and author. He started his career in the NFL as a top pick for the Houston Oilers and continuing on with the San Francisco 49ers. During his five-year career, Bo competed besides and against some of the greatest players of his generation. And after his football career ended, he branched out into acting and wrote a one-man play called Runt of the Litter that went to Broadway. And now as a speaker and leadership coach, he trains some of the most successful people in the world, athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, C-suite execs, on how to communicate for maximum impact and success. He's got a brand new book, There's No Plan B for Your A-Game. Be the best in the world at what you do. And he's here to chop it up with all of us on the Model Health Show. So I'd like to introduce you and jump into this conversation with the incredible Bo Eason. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I'm pretty sure it was Tecmo Bowl or Super Tecmo Bowl, I played you in a video game. Is that, you know what? I, Axel and I were just talking about that. Um, so funny that you said it, because I used to have buddies that were into video games, right? But yeah. I wasn't. And I didn't know anything about video games. And they go, man, you're, you're my safety and whatever. Well, I don't know if it's Madden or whatever it yeah. was. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, uh, they go, man, you're really good on this thing. Yeah. I go, oh, God, that's good. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, that's, a, that's kind of a rule that we've implemented into our home, Don and I, mm-hmm. with the kids, is, is you can play video games if you're in the video game. <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you're a character yeah. in it, then you can play it. Wow, I love that so much. And yeah, you were you were one of those players that like had a little bit more speed. Is that and that right? was yeah. your goal too, I think, when you were coming up. Like you wanted to be not just the fastest person, but the fastest person running backwards. Yeah, that's right. That's you know? right. And so I, I read your book and it's one of my favorite books of the year. Oh, great. Thanks, so Sean. much good stuff. Just nugget after nugget. I'm going to be quoting you during this episode. Okay. But one of the things you started off early in the book, one of these early statements, you said that you will succeed or fail based on the stories you tell yourself and others. Mm. Why does your story uh, that you know we tell ourselves yeah. matter so much? Yeah, I, uh, you know, 
people have family stories, right? They come from a family usually all the time. And that's that family has a story, has a family like tradition or story. And the story could be great, like of achievement or of honor or the heroism, or the story could be like, oh, we got a bunch of alcoholics in our family. Yeah. We got some crazies in our family, which every family does. But Uncle you, Larry, yeah, everybody Uncle has Larry. Uncle Larry. Yeah, hey, <laughs> sitting around the table at Thanksgiving, you're like, damn, Uncle Larry's still here. <laughs> uh, so, so we then take on that story. You know, yeah. like we'll take it on for real or or not. And you know, everybody that I've ever known. Um, creates their own story. The ones that really achieve, they create their own story regardless of their family story. They go, I'm going to be the author of my own story, my own life story, and I'm going to rewrite our family tradition. And I'm going to go forward, uh, you know, extricating myself from that story. Yeah. And it's kind of an emancipation. Like you, you say, I'm independent of my family. This is my story. I'm no longer going to live out that family story. And the people that have always that I've always admired that have really gone to the top, regardless of their background, they're the ones who go, no, no, I'm actually putting a stake in the ground, and this is my story. So, and then you, what 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 we actually do is we live it out, no different than as an actor lives out a, a part. Like right. if you take a great actor like Denzel Washington or Robert De Niro, they become that role that the writer wrote, and that's why they're so great. Right? That's why you can't take your eyes off them because they live it, they dress like it, they look like it, their hairs like it. And you and I do the same exact thing. We're just doing it unconsciously. And so if you and I have control and we're the author of that story, why do we always write a crappy story? You know, most people write like a really bad story. Like I'm mediocre. Yeah. I'm just getting by. That If you're the author, you might as well write like a, you know, a love story or like one of courage and bravery. And that's what people just kind of fail to do. Yeah. yeah, and that's the great thing and why I'm so excited to have you on. You're one of the people, you're probably the foremost person on the planet in helping people to really take ownership of their story mm-hmm. and, to, and to proactively, consciously write their story. Yeah. And you shared, for me, the fact that our stories really do dictate everything about our lives. Like you just kind of detail, it's like a movie that we're playing out. Mm-hmm. And But in that statement, you also mentioned the stories that we tell other people. Mm-hmm. So how does that matter? Yeah. Well, if you're living it out, you're going to be then telling your story. Your body, like I'll use the example of like uh, like a, a great great performer like Denzel or De Niro, like a, or Pacino. Their body is actually living out that character, and so their body cannot lie. You know, the body can't lie. So you know, you can you can you can make false statements can come out of your mouth, but your body will betray you every time. So these guys, great performers, embody that story. So the body can't lie. So every molecule that they're walking around with is expressing that story. Same for you and me. We're living into we're living this story in real time in front of real people all the time. And so when you, that's why when some, and this happens, rarely does this happen, but when it does happen, it's very apparent to everyone in the room. When somebody walks into the room or you're walking in the airport and somebody walks by, and you're like, damn, and you're staring at them. And it might, it might not be like an a, attractive thing like, uh, oh, I want to date her. Or I want to date him. It's not like that. 
It's more like, why am I just looking at that person? Why is that person uh, uh, carrying such presence? And it's because they're unapologetic about the story that they're living out. Mm. Where most people are walking around trying to um, hide everything about them and apologizing if they're too powerful or too good looking or too strong. And they're indicating to the world, hey, I'm not that strong. And you see this all the time. You'll see it in politics. You'll see it in media. You'll see people, once they're being looked at, they start to do weird things with their bodies that show that indicates to the audience, hey, I'm not as handsome as I appear to be. I'm not as strong as I appear to be. I'm not dangerous. I'm very safe. Look at me. And that that's not how human beings, you know, were made, mm. you know. Uh, so... I mean, for everyone watching and listening to us today, it's all about like, look, you're living out a story. That story could be great. That story could suck. It's up to you. You're the author of it. Yeah, facts. That's absolute facts. And that's one of the things that you've really taught and something I picked up from you early on that I never really thought about is the fact that we're playing out our stories physically, you know, and teaching that physicality. And another level of ownership of our story Mm -hmm. is through the way that we present our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, but I want to talk about your story a little bit because if I'm, and I hope that I'm quoting this correctly, but there were four people from your high school that went to the NFL. Yeah. And nobody had done that prior to you being there. Right. And nobody has done it after you being there. That's right. And this was really a result. And you make a clear case for that in the book of the story that you picked up. Yeah. And so- for you, when was it that you started to kind of embody that story and start to write that script for you going to the NFL? Yeah, well, when I was nine, I made the plan, right? So I, 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 that's when I drew up the 20-year plan uh, to be the best safety in the world. And, it, you know, obviously I was, you know, small. Everyone's small at nine. But um, there was a lot of kids around me that were a lot more athletic and a lot better than I was at the time. But I knew, I had some sense that given when I would be drafted, which would be 1984. So we're talking about 1969 where I'm drawing the plan up. Mm. And all I could think about, I added up the years until I went through high school, until I went through college, and I would be eligible to be drafted. And that would be 1984. And so I go, but by then, I will have outrun them all. I'll outwork them all, and then I'll be the one standing on top then. So I had that kind of, I don't know why, but I had that kind of, um, foresight to yeah. see that. So I went to high school where I had 280 kids in the high school, really small farm community, never had a pro athlete before I got there, never have they had one since I left. And I have an older brother, right, who's 17 months older than me, Tony. And he was m- much bigger than me, even though we're a year apart in school. He was taller. He was more stoic. He was like, uh, you know, he was a quarterback. Yeah. And he was still to this day, uh, he's like the best athlete I've ever seen. I mean, he can pick up a tennis racket or a golf club or basketball, but it doesn't matter. He can play. And he's always been like that. And I'm like, damn, how's he doing that? You know, because I'm growing up with him. Yeah. And we're throwing the ball back and forth. So um, we get to high school, right? And, and you know, obviously never been a pro athlete from this tiny high school. And we had... 27 boys on our high school team. And I'm like half of them, you know, you had to throw uniforms on people just to right. get the numbers right. up. So you, so you could have some team. <laughs> a team. Yeah. 
And my brother and I were both on that same team. And um, I had this dream and I had this plan to be the best safety. And I never really heard anybody else talking about a plan or a dream or playing in the NFL. I I don't remember hearing it. But as it turns out, one team with 27 guys on it, 27 farm boys on it, turn out four NFL players off one team. And those four NFL players, it wasn't like they were kind of cup of coffee guys. They, we played for a total of 25 years and two Super Bowls. Mm. So crazy. It, it's crazy, right, to think because the odds, you know, just so everyone knows, here's the odds if you play high school football. 0.03% of high school football players play in the NFL. 0.03%. So I always ask people, so I had 27 dudes on my high school team. Based on that percentage of 0.03%, how many of us do you think went to the pros? And they're like, well, zero. Right. And I go, no, four. And never, you would think like a legacy would start, right? Or that some, but it was this, that one year, it was that one team. And... You know, when I thought back, I was like, how could that be? You know, statistically, an impossibility, correct? It's just impossible. That can happen. Especially when it's not a football factory to begin with. And that happens, right? So a lot of people always go, well, what was in the water? You know, (laughs) or what, what was the... Well, why did this, how could this happen? And I always think back, and I don't know this to be 100% true, but I always think back to the 20-year plan, the, 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 the one kid who had the dream. Yeah. And did that help the others go along? Because the kid who did have the dream was kind of smallish, kind of not the best player, right? And this is the people I always think about, Sean. I... I Obviously, I know those four guys, right? One's my brother, and I know the two other guys. But these are the guys I think about every day. Not those four. Is the five guys out of that 27 that were better than us. Mm. I always think about them. Not a day goes by, I don't think about the five guys who are better than the four that went all the way. And and I always think of like um, the regret that, they must feel. I've never talked to them about it, but they were better. They were bigger. And something just derailed them. Either it wasn't their dream or it was, you know, uh, parting or lost track or it got too hard. Something derailed them. And I always think about them. Like, I wonder if they wanted to do it. I wonder if they knew they were better or maybe they didn't have a dad like me who was encouraging them. It, uh, there's all these, you know, variables that fall into it. Mm-hmm. So four guys go all the way and five guys, the other five were better than those four. And so it could have been nine out of 27. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been crazy? That, yeah, it already is. Right. You know, and I, just from the vibe from the book, I know, and I know you can, you can say that you don't know if it's 100% the case, but I just feel it from reading the book that, it was your intention that like really propelled and the way that you would even talk about it got into other people's bones, you know, yeah. with your brother and the other two fellas. Yeah. And, you know, it's contagious, yep. you know, when somebody has that plan, has the audacity and 
what was so remarkable is that you weren't thinking in such a short term, which is what we tend to do. Yeah. You know, we dramatically underestimate what we can achieve, yeah. you know, long term. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I, there was one instance that was, I loved it in this book because I'd never heard the story before of you having a picture of Walter Payton yeah. in your locker. Yeah. Can you share that story? Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that story. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up and I was in high school, Walter Payton was the man, right? Like, so even though the Chicago Bears weren't a good team then, they got better like in 85 when they beat my brother in the Super Bowl, actually. They were great then. But before that, they weren't so good, but he was amazing. And I just love, I loved his nickname, Sweetness. I love how he ran the ball. I love how, like, he wasn't, he was much smaller than you would imagine, especially when you see him in person. You're like, man, he doesn't look like the Walter Payton that, uh, you know, like he's kind of not very tall, but he's strong and he can play. Anyway, I just admired him. I loved the, the way he played. And so uh, I cut his picture out of Sports Illustrated. I put it up in my locker at school, right? So you know when you're in high school how many times you open your locker every day. Yeah, you open it like 10 times a day and there's Walter Payton. And the picture of Walter Payton, which I think is the most important part of the story, is he's running right at the camera lens in a game. They somehow captured it. He's looking right into the lens as he's running. And so the picture, if you're looking at it in my locker, he's looking right at me. And he's got the ball in his hand and he's like about ready to collide with me, you know, as a, as a safety, as a player. So that goes on for four years of me opening that locker and looking at Walter Payton, right? Then, you know, I move on and go to college and I don't, have that picture up anymore in college. I don't even have a locker. Uh, and I'm in the pros now. Now it's 1984. Now it's 1985 and they won the Super Bowl, right? We played them the very next year. So they just beat my brother in the Super Bowl and now I'm playing against Walter Payton for the first time. So it must've been 86 or early 85. And he gets the ball and he's sweeping to his right, so to my left, and I'm coming up to make the tackle. And when that happens, when you're now gonna tackle somebody who you've admired your whole life, it's weird because your whole life kind of turns into slow motion. And I'm running up and I'm going, shit, that's Walter Payton, man. And I am go I'm about to tackle Walter Payton. And as I get closer and closer to him, I go, this is gonna happen. This is gonna happen. Here it comes. Oh, this is gonna hurt. Bam! And I tackle him and we go, we both go down, right? And he's laying flat on his back, right? And now he's a veteran, right? He's been around forever. He's like the best running back in the league. And I'm a rookie and I'm laying on top of Walter Payton, right? Because I'm shocked that I got him on the ground. So, uh, you know, you're supposed, they, veterans do not like rookies laying on them, right? In the NFL. <laughs> they want you off of them as quickly as possible. They don't want you like, you know, wallowing in your success. But I kind of was just laying there, kind of shocked. Yeah. And I remember thinking this, oh, shit, I hope my mom and dad saw that on TV because <laughs> right. I just tackled Walter Payton. The and picture from your locker. Yeah, the you. exact wow. same picture. As I'm running up to him, he's looking at me. It's the exact same picture. And then get him on the ground. I start to stand up slowly off of him uh, after I'm on top of him for way too long. And as I'm getting up, he kicks me right in the groin and goes and drops some MFs on me. This is Walter Payton. Remember yeah. how sweet, yeah, remember yeah, how, yeah. how high his voice was? <laughs> like he's a sweet guy. 
But right then I go, okay, this is serious. Like he yeah. doesn't, you know, this is no hero worship anymore. Yeah. This I'm guy's here. the real deal. But the picture of me, of him in my locker, and the picture of him as I approached him to tackle him was exactly the same picture. And as, a, as I got further along in my career, those things happened over and over again where it's like this deja vu of like, yeah. oh, I, I've been here before. I was here when I was 10 and 11 and 12 because you start to play against the guys that were your heroes. Yeah. And you learn that they're just guys just like you who could be tackled, who will drop an MF on you quickly <laughs> and kick you in the groin because they're competitors, you know? Yeah. And that's when you go, oh, shit, this is... This is it, man. I'm here. Powerful. Yeah, man, this is cool. so powerful. That's, that's just, really cool. That's just a really big testament. And I know that everybody listening has had those moments, you yep. know, where they visualize and saw something and it ends up, ha ends up happening. Yep. But the level that you've done it is just astounding because you actually like focused on it. Yep. You know, you made it real for yourself. Yeah. But there's also something really important that you reiterated different ways throughout the book. And it's the importance of eliminating everything that doesn't mm. support your story. It's yeah. not just the things you're doing, yeah. but eliminating the things that do not support your story. So you got to talk about that. Yeah. It, most people think, Sean, that, um, wow, if I'm going to attempt to be the best in the world at something, I got to I gotta make a big to-do list and I got to follow the list and do a bunch of things. And then I got to gather a bunch of things and a bunch of people and build this thing so I can be the best. That is not true. It's actually, you get there by eliminating things. So you gain greatness by eliminating things. It's weird. It's like a myth, you know? People think like successful people got a thousand people around them or a 10,000 person team around them and they don't, you know? It's lean. I always think of it like this. You know, militarily, uh, say the U.S. military, when we really need a job to be done, like we need something to happen, who do we send in? Do we send in 200,000 troops to march around that country for 10? We don't do that, do we? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. What we do do is send in the 12 best dudes, elite military. We send in special forces, 12 guys who are going to get the job done. They might come back with eight, but they're getting the, they don't finish. They, they don't come back empty-handed. They finish the job. Think of it like that. You've got to start eliminating all the troops to get to the elite, right? So um, I've always been good at this. My parents, some innate way, were really good at elimination. They were good at eliminating distractions, people, you know, people with negative thoughts or didn't believe in dreams or didn't take dreams seriously, naysayers, uh, bad coaching, which, you know, we've all had and yeah. it's really easy to recognize yeah. that my parents were really quick to get rid of them. Um, all of those distractions, all of those naysayers, all of those people who say your dream, you can't have your dreams, they were really quick to get rid of them. And I mean, get rid of them. Yeah. And I've always had that ability too. So if it's a bad coach or somebody that's not on, doesn't believe in me or believe in my dreams, I'm really quick to extricate myself from them and being around them, really quick. Um, 
people with mediocre mindsets, I'm really quick to step aside and let them live that life, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so I think to reach the top, it's about cutting the fat away, cutting all that away. It's no different than uh, Michelangelo, you know, when he, I always think of him when he created the David, you know, he had the, he had the chisel that thing uh, and people go, well, how did you create the David? How did you do that? And he said, it was pretty simple. I took the marble. It was just a big old hunk of marble and I chipped away at what wasn't necessary. Mm. And as soon as he got rid of everything that wasn't necessary, out comes the David. I think our, us attempting to be the best in the world at something is exactly the same thing. You just chip away at what's not necessary. Now that, that goes for food, that goes for exercise, that goes for mentors, coaching, who you marry, yeah. that, that, who you date, all of it falls in, who you hang out with, all of that stuff falls away until it's very lean and you only have the David sitting there, which is the best in the world, yeah. Wow. Um, there's a, there's a, a small statement that you've said several times already that I hope people are picking up on. You said the best mm -hmm. several times already. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you, you make a statement in the book, you were speaking on stage somewhere and you were sharing the stage. I think there was a brain doctor uh, yeah. there and he said how powerful it was that you were using those words, the yep. best. Yep. And it's really been a big part of your success because mm -hmm. it gives your brain direction. So can you talk about specifically why would, and it's going to make some people uncomfortable, yeah. you know, to, to yeah. say that. Why would you have the audacity to say that I want to be the best? I am the best. I know people get so, um, not everybody, because I think most people in their, in their primitive natural self know that that's why they're here. And when, so when somebody speaks it, which is so rare these days, and says uh, gold medal, not silver, or you're the best, not second. Uh, most uh, uh, people feel it deep inside them like, oh yeah, I just forgot. That is why I'm here. Because if you look at the odds in which we're born, you know, like if you think about the odds, there's really, the odds are so stacked against us, you and me even being here or being born. Um, and we were born number one. Like we were the one, you and me were the ones who penetrated that uh, egg uh, so that we could become a human being, right? And the odds of that happening were at least 300 million to one. That's how many sperm are delivered. 300 million to one odds that were born and you and me won that race, right? And I'm sure the competitors that we were swimming against that day were like us, right? I always think of Michael Phelps's would-be brothers and sisters, and the day of that swim that he had. Right. Like, and that dude won. Right. No wonder he's got 20 gold medals. Right, You right. know? <laughs> that, it's a competitive uh, uh, swim to the death yeah. for us to even be born. So we are born the best. Then we're born into the world, and we're trying to prove to the world that we're not the best. Mm -hmm. And the media tells us, Hollywood tells us, DC tells us, most of the publishing world tells us that mediocre is fine when we're not born that way. So when I say the word the best, um, a lot of people feel that in, in their instinct, deep down, and they're reminded of actually who they are. The reason I use the word the best is because of my dad. That's how he woke us up. 
you know, and my dad, you know, he's been dead for 10 years, but up until pretty close to the day he died, every time he woke me up, which was for 18 years straight, and then after I got married and started having kids and stuff, he would still do it. He would rub our backs, and I, I'm the youngest of six kids, right? So I was the last in line. So it was my four older sisters, then my brother, then me. And he would wake us up early in the morning, and he would rub our backs. And it wasn't, you know, he had dirty hands, and he had rough hands. He was a cowboy, you know? And he would rough, and he wasn't a gentle guy, and he would whisper in our ears, you're the, keep moving, partner. You're the best in there. Damn it, keep moving. And that's how I was woke up every morning of my life, right? So... For the first 21, 22 years of my life, me and my brother were embarrassed that he was saying that to us because he would say it to us when we're up to bat in Little League and he would yell it in the middle of a game. You're the best, damn it, you know? <laughs> and can I say that word? Yeah, can I say it? Okay. Um, and he would say it. Uh, my brother and I went on a double date once with the Tomasini sisters. He says it in front of them. Like wow. well, I was 15, my brother was 16. We're going to see Saturday Night Fever. With the, <laughs> and he's saying, damn it, boys, you're the best. Yeah. You're leaders. You know, he was, and the girls were like, what is he saying? <laughs> and me and my brother, my brother's like, dad, go back in the house. We got this. Wow. And that's how he is, mm. right? Unbending. Didn't matter if we sucked. Didn't matter if we weren't the best that day. Yeah. He still said it. And he said it to my sisters. That's how it went. Um, Everyone thinks, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people think, oh, Bo, you know, you talk about being the best. That's really conceited. Or that's a little too big for your britches. And I'm like, I don't think it is. Because every time I've attempted to be the best, uh, other people come with me. Mm. Just like the, yeah. the four guys off that little team yeah. in high school. Yeah. Um, so is it selfish? Is it conceited? I don't. I don't think so. I think we were born to be the best. I'm just trying to live it out. I'm trying to bring it into existence. And, and, and I do it in different disciplines, right? It doesn't right. matter yeah. what. I don't even care what discipline it is. You could say to me, Bo, um, let's you and me achieve perfect pitch in the next 20 years. Mm. And that, that's actually a possibility, right? So they used to think that that wasn't a possibility. You had to be born with perfect pitch like Mariah Carey or Beethoven. But that's actually not true. That's actually, you and me could train with one of the greatest voice coaches in the world for the next 12, 15, 20 years, and you and me could achieve perfect pitch. And almost nobody on the planet couldn't do that. Isn't that wild? Wow, yeah. The, the only people who can't do that is if you're tone deaf. And there's almost nobody in the world that's tone deaf. People think, you're, oh, you're a bad singer. You must be tone deaf. That's not true. You just don't have enough training. Yeah. So given the training, you and me could actually, which would be, we'd be world class, right? right. We could do the same in chess. Create a Christmas album. Yeah. <laughs> it might be something we want to do. Anyway, but that can be achieved playing the piano, playing the saxophone, um, um, chess, memorization, uh, running the mile. All of these things can be uh, achieved given the time. Uh, given, you know, and you got to aim at being the best. I just think, and, and here's the thing too about that brain doctor. So he said, you know why you've achieved these things at a high level in different disciplines? Like you went from safety to 
to being a playwright and a performer there and then being a speaker and a trainer here and an author there. He goes, do you know how, you know why you're able to reach that level? And I go, no, I, I really don't. This, this was several years ago. I go, no, I don't think I do. And he goes, because you use the word the best. And I go, well, okay, say more about that. And he goes, well, your brain knows exactly what to do if you say the best, but your brain does not know what to do with average or mediocre or second or third. It doesn't know what to do with that information. So think about that. And I always, I always tell people when they go, well, Bo, you're being uh, conceited. Well, number one is too high. And I go, okay, I'll change my training if this sentence has ever happened in the history of the world. A kid goes up to their mom and dad when they're seven or eight, when kids always say it. They come up and they say, mom, dad, I want to win a gold medal in the Olympics, or I want to be the best saxophone player in the world. They, do they, has any kid ever gone up to their mom and dad and said this sentence? Mom, dad, I've decided what I want to do with my life. I want to win the bronze medal. <laughs> yeah. It's never been said. It's never been said. Now, we'll take a bronze medal if we lose the gold, right? Yeah, we'll yeah. take the silver. It's, but, you know, you, you, you've had friends who've won silver medals. You've had friends who've won bronze medals. If yeah. you ask them, because I always go, dude, where's your medal? I want to see it. Where's your silver? Where's your bronze? And you know what they always say? I don't know where it is. Yeah. They know where the gold is because that's on the wall. Silver's never on the wall. It's in a gym bag, 20 years old, sitting in a locker room somewhere that their mom has in the garage. It's weird, right? Yeah, yeah. But so I will change my dialogue as soon as some kid goes to their mom and dad and says they want to win a silver medal. I'll, I'll change it. I'll be happy to. But no one's ever said that. But as years go by, they get so beat up and so beat down that they go, I'll just take a medal. Yeah. And then they're getting nothing. Yeah. They're not even on the Olympic team at that point, right? Because they opted for plan B instead of plan A. Plan A always happens. It always happens. Unless you opt for plan B, then plan B happens. Yeah. That's how it goes. Incredible, incredible. What's so really cool about this is that you have proven this in different disciplines. Yeah. You know, from getting to the NFL and competing and just being amongst players like... Walter Payton and Jerry Rice and being able to pick up nuggets that you've shared with all of us from those experiences. Yeah. And from then, you know, pretty devastating uh, knee injury of, of several yeah. um, curtailed that, that experience yep. and you were forced to dive into something else. And you knew, and I think, can you share this? Because I think you said like, I'm gonna end up in jail. Like this <laughs> skill set that I have doesn't translate over. <laughs> it's so true. So, you know, if you spent the last 20 years of your life, which I did at one point, uh, attempting to be the best safety in the world, right? So if that, in the 80s, I don't know if it's true today, but because the rules are different, but if you're the best safety in the 1980s, that's the era of Jack Tatum, right? Of uh, Doug Plank, of uh, trained killers, right? So if you're the best safety, your job is to run full speed, and bury your head into other human beings and de you know, destroy their courage and everything so they, they do not enter this zone anymore. So you take the fear right out of the best athletes in the world. That's, that's your job. So if you're going to reach the top at that job, which I was, 
You, it's very nerve wracking because you're thinking, because I got injured and it was my seventh knee surgery. And as I was laying on this field, it was in the Orange Bowl in Miami, we're playing the Dolphins. And I was laying on my back and I was being, and they got me on a stretcher and started wheeling me off. And I knew it was pretty much over, close to over then. First image that I thought of my life was prison. Because I thought about like, look, I'm the best in the world at this thing that I've trained for for 20 years. And that thing does not translate to the civilian world very well because what it is is about hurting people right. and being acknowledged and paid for it. Right. Uh, and I just thought, oh man, the best place for me to be is prison. <laughs> <laughs> because You're dangerous. Right? Because I, I could survive in that environment. Yeah. I'd thrive in that environment. And in the next moment as I was having fear about wearing that orange jumpsuit as they're wheeling me off in Miami. I just remember going, I've got to find a platform, like a place, because it used to be on a grass field, and I got to find another field, another place to put all this TNT that I feel inside my body. Where, where is that going to be? Is that going to be in prison where I can express myself fully there? Is it going to be hurting people? Is it going to be hurting myself? Because that's what I'm really trained well to do. And I thought, I'm going to move to New York City. Right then, I thought, I'm moving to New York City. Now, I, I didn't have any history with New York City, City other than playing the Jets or the Giants. That was it. So I'm in there for a night at a time. But I knew that theater was there. I knew that Broadway and off-Broadway, and, and it, was, it was about theater there. I just knew that uh, somehow. And I thought, well, those people express themselves, whether it be Mikhail Baryshnikov in, in, uh, in ballet or it be uh, Robert De Niro in playing, you know, one, uh, a part or, or, or Marlon Brando on Broadway. These people were, were, were men like me. They were expressive and they were the best in the world at what they did. Why can't I go get trained like that? And so I had the surgery, I rehabbed, moved to New York City and just started training my butt off, just like it took, same protocol that it took me to be the best safety in the world, I did, but as a stage performer. So people always go, well, that's so different. Pro sports and, and, and Broadway, off-Broadway performance, that's, that's two different disciplines. And I said, it's not, it's really a lot alike. The principles of being the best in those two things are exactly the same. I knew how to show up, I knew how to run the miles, and I knew the time commitment that it would take. Yeah. Uh, so I was in New York, I took every class I could possibly take. Now mind you, I had no background in this, right? So yeah. I, was, I was probably just horrible, but I thought I was good at saying these lines and performing on stage and learning how to move on stage and then learning how to write. And I took all these classes and every class that I went into, Sean, I was like the oldest dude in there, right? So I already had a career, but these were kids. Right. It was like 18, 19 year old kids. I was 27, 28 by the time I was done with football. And I'd go in there and they thought I was some old dude. And I go, listen, everybody, listen to me. Who's the best stage performer? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine their faces. Who's the best stage performer of our time? Who is that? Who's that person? And they all said Al Pacino. This was about 1990. And I go, cool. Uh, where is he? 
(laughs) (laughs) And they were like, I don't know, man. He's Al Pacino. He's probably on a movie set somewhere. He's probably acting somewhere. I go, cool. Because if he's the best, then... I need to talk to him. I just need to, because, you know, the one thing you learn is only the best at what they do will help you be the best at what you do. And those second place members, they never help you. That's interesting. Weird, right? That's really interesting. Right? Like you, if you go, like if your son wants to be the best receiver in the world, I would send him directly to Jerry Rice. I would send him directly to the greatest receiver ever. Uh, Maybe the greatest football player ever. And he would help him. And he's the only one who could, and he's the only one who would help him. Because everybody chasing Jerry Rice is going to be, one, worried that you're going to pass them up, which you are, (laughs) because your aim is to be the best. And they can't teach you how to be the best because if they could, they would be the best. So I go directly to the guy. Same thing with Al Pacino, right? So they say he's the best. I go, okay, where's he? And... I was having dinner one night in New York City with a friend who introduced me to Lee Strasberg's um, wife. Lee Strasberg had died, so it was the widow of Lee Strasberg. Her name was Anna Strasberg. Lee Strasberg was the most famous acting coach in the world, right? He was Al Pacino's acting coach, along Mm. with Marlon Marlon Brando, Sophia Loren, uh, Marilyn Monroe, um, you know, James Dean, and a whole list. So I sat down and had dinner with her and I go, hey, I started asking her questions. How do I be the best? How do I do this? What do I, how do I train? What do I do? And she goes, you know what? You ask a lot of questions. Um, I'm going to put you together with um, Al Pacino. You've heard of him? I go, yeah, I heard of him. And uh, so I was at Al Pacino's house within like a week. Incredible. That's crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. And I just, I just said to him, no different than I would with your, in the same scenario with your son and Jerry Rice, I just said, hey man, I want what you got. Can you tell me how to get it, what you got? I wanna take your mantle. How do I do it? Because I knew how to work, Sean, but I didn't know exactly where to put that work. Yeah. And he goes, okay, Bo, I'll tell you, but that's gonna be 15 years. And I go, that's cool, because I work great in those kind of timelines. Right. <laughs> and Been so, there before. Yeah. And basically, he told me the same principles that I would have told anybody who wanted to be the best safety, which is your butt, is your body is going to have to be on a stage performing more than any other human being's body in the next 15 years. And if you do that, if you do that, you'll be standing on top. And that's exactly what I did. I just did exactly what he said. I go, I'm, th- there's one thing that I had control over. I didn't have control over the way I looked, like other actors were handsomer or more talented or had more experience than me. The one thing I had was I knew how to show up for 15, 20 years and put my butt on a stage for more hours than they would. That's it. Same thing as being the best safety. So that's what I did. And then after 15 years passed, uh, I was just, you know, I was on stage in New York uh, performing my play that I'm the only guy in. And Al Pacino's sitting right there in the audience. And we make eye contact. And I'm like, that's Al Pacino right there watching me perform a play. And he just gave me a nod. We made eye contact, gives me a nod. And that was it. I mean, that's that's what things take. That's what mastery takes. The, the, The bad part is, is 
Or the sad part is, is people just want to skip all those years. You know, they want to just want to skip it or just go, yeah, I, I do want to be the best receiver in the world, but can we get it without putting in the 15 years? Can I get it? And I'm like, no. And then they'll go, I want to be the best uh, 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 stage performer in the world. Can I skip those 15, 20 years? Uh, no, can't. And that's just how it goes. So, you know, these timelines that people have just have to be broader. Yeah. And most people, you know, especially in this world that we live in, it's just so quick. It's everything's so fast. You get instant gratification. So everyone, you can just, everything's at your fingertips. But mastery is not. Yeah. And that's the one thing I love about it is no one will compete with you when it comes to those kind of timelines. They just won't. They'll eventually go away. Mm. It's a lot of room out here, you know. Um, listen, so just having that experience and uh, being able to absorb the information from, again, the best. When you want to be the best, you seek out the best. Yep. And you, a lot of household names, so these you know, major actors have been in your audience and you decided to share this gift with the rest of us mm -hmm. and just these different insights and the training and all those things and put a lot of this into the book. Mm -hmm. And so we're gonna talk about more of those insights right after this quick break. So sit tight, we'll be right back. Today, we're in the midst of a new revolution with our understanding of food. We used to just be focused on this macronutrient paradigm, proteins, fats, carbohydrates. Carbohydrates and proteins got a pretty good name, but fats were drugged through the mud. Why is that? Because it's called fat, all right? The name implies something different than the other two. Because when we hear the word fat, we think about fat on our bodies. Fat in food and fat in our bodies are two totally different things. And it's like thinking, if I eat blueberries, I'm going to turn blue. When you think that eating fat is going to turn you fat. It just doesn't work like that. And any of those three macronutrients can actually put fat on your body if you eat too much or the wrong types. Healthy fats, which I'm proposing that we start to call lipids or even energy, are incredibly important for every single function in your body. Your cells, every single cell in your body, we have upwards of 100 trillion cells that make you up, require fats to just maintain the integrity of your cell membranes. We're talking about the thing that holds your cells together and enables your cells to communicate. It's very important. Also your brain, your brain is mostly fat and water. This is why fats are so important. When you're deficient in fats, especially the right kinds of fats, you can see some big issues. So in order to address that, some of my favorite things today are MCT oils. And specifically, if we look at emulsified MCT oils that actually taste amazing. And these are median chain triglyceride oils that are extracted from things like coconut or palm. And these medium chain triglycerides have a thermogenic effect on the body, which means they are able to positively alter your metabolism. All right, that's number one, thermogenic effect from MCT oils, positively altering your metabolism. Number two, MCTs are more easily absorbed by your cells. So unlike conventional food of any type that has to go through a pretty arduous process of digestion, turning that food stuff into you stuff, MCTs are able to go directly to your cells and provide almost instant energy. And number three, MCT oils are very protective of your microbiome. There's so much research today about the importance of having a healthy microbiome and the integrity of our gut. MCT oils are one of those things that help to support that because they're especially effective at combating viruses, 
parasites, bacteria. There's so much goodness that is able to be found in these MCT oils, but you want to get the good stuff. And for me, that's why I go to onit.com forward slash model. That's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash M-O-D-E-L to get the emulsified MCT oils, which is like a coffee creamer. These are great to add to your coffees and teas, smoothies and things like that to get in a little bit of extra flavor plus all the benefits of MCT oils. They're easy to stir so you don't have to throw everything into a blender just to get a nice coffee drink, but also they taste good and they make the process of being healthy, fun and enjoyable. So head over, check them out. They've got vanilla, coconut, cinnamon swirl, and strawberry. It's one of my favorites. So go to onit.com forward slash model for 10% off your entire purchase, not just for the MCT oil, but all of the health and human performance supplements that Onit carries and all of their fitness equipment, gear, and so much other cool stuff. All right, head over there, check them out, onit.com forward slash model. Now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with Bo Eason about his incredible new book, There's No Plan B for Your A Game. And if anybody knows about this and becoming the best in the world at something, it's Bo Eason. And before the break, we're talking about a little bit of your experience in interacting and absorbing um, some of the insights from some of the best in the world and you yourself becoming the best. And one of the things that, that I want to talk to you about, and this is in the book, this is a direct quote. There's so many quotes that I have. You said, quote, there's no gene for working to bring something rewarding into existence. There's no inherited talent for discipline. Mm. And you were talking about people's reservation of diving in and working hard, basically. Yeah. And you're saying there's no gene for that. Yep. So nobody else has an advantage. You just need to step into that yeah. arena. I, that, I think our, our world is so stuck on, and I, and the media talks about this all the time, and being an athlete or a former athlete in my 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 kids being athletes, um, when I watch shows like ESPN or sports television, um, they're always talking about, oh, he's a natural, she's gifted, they got the genes, you didn't. You know, they're inferring that the audience didn't get these genes, right? And so they'll take somebody like a, you know, like a Kobe Bryant or a Michael Jordan and they'll say, well, they, they got the tall gene and they got the basketball gene and you didn't. Well, that's just, there's no such gene. There's no such thing. But what it does, it gives people an excuse not to work as hard as Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Yeah. It gives you an out. And I think that's a really bad message to be sending. There's no gene for that. You and me could decide today to become world-class at a number of things. And we could achieve it before we die. We could achieve it in the next 20 years. That, that's, I think that's the only way to live your life, is to take your life into 20-year chunks and go, I'm going to be world-class at this thing by the end of these 20 years. And just live your life in those little increments instead of going, oh, I just don't have that acting gene. I can never be a great actor. Or I just don't have, I just, I can't throw the ball. That, that's, there's no such thing. I just think it's a way out for us to be lazy and not put in those 20 years of mastery. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's what I think about that stuff. Uh, and, and people often push back and they'll go, well, Bo, shoot, I don't have 20 years. And this will be like a 20-year-old person saying it to me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so you're going to be dead by the time you're 40. Is that what you're, that's your prognostication? That's what you're telling me. 
Because you're telling me you don't have 20 years. And they go, no, but I want to, I'll be alive when I'm 40, but I, I'll be old. Mm. Um, wow. Actually, no. You can actually achieve world class if you want it. It's up to you. Yeah. There's that. I just think this whole gene thing, this whole natural thing, like, oh, you're a natural, I'm not. You're a natural, I'm not. That just, it, I think it just lowers the bar in our world, too. Yeah. And you notice the people who say that stuff, it's the ones who could have done it and didn't. They're the ones who say that. The ones who promote this word called, he's a natural, you're not, they're... They have the ability to be that great too. They just decided not to. And so they use this excuse saying, oh, he's a natural. My family's not made like that. Yeah. Just, you can look at biology. The first rule of biology, you know, is competition. We know how to compete. Mm -hmm. You know, you and me are here because our ancestors knew how to compete and survive, right? The only reason we're here. The dinosaurs, ain't, they're not here. Right, they were bigger, they were faster, they were stronger than us. They could do everything better than us except adapt. Like us human beings, we know how to adapt and we know how to adapt fast. We're really great at that. So therefore, whatever we choose to be the best at, we can achieve it in this lifetime. We just gotta run some miles and put ourselves in demanding situations so then we have to adapt. And no one wants to do that. Because guess what? Adaptation is not comfortable. It's struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone goes, well, I like when things are easy. And then our world, our culture promotes this ease. They promote ease and luxury. And I'm like, well, why don't we promote struggle and hard work? Wouldn't, wouldn't we have a better world? Wouldn't a lot of people achieve this greatness instead of promoting mediocrity all the time? That would be a lot better place to live. Yeah. And then the bar would get raised higher and higher and higher. Uh, instead of it going lower and lower and lower. Yeah, yeah that's right. facts. That's what's actually happening. Yeah. And it's uh, one of the words you use also throughout the book is commitment. And when people are saying, for example, they come to you and say, Bo, I want to be in a committed relationship. <laughs> yeah. And you'll ask, how are your commitments doing in other areas? Yeah. How yeah. does that translate? Yeah, because commitment is the new cool, right? Like, remember when cool was cool? Like, I remember watching Happy Days when I was a kid and they had that character named Fonzie and he'd go, hey, and he was cool. He was cool because he was distant and he was like, had a cigarette and he was like, cool. That used to be cool, right? That's not cool anymore. Commitment's cool because commitment's attractive. Hmm. You ever notice, I, I just remember this feeling or this sensation happening when I was um, single. So when I was dating, um, I remember uh, being attracted to a certain girl and her not being attracted to me as far as I know, right? And then I met my uh, future wife. I met Dawn, right? And I go, oh, she's the one. I'm marrying her. And I remember this distinctly happening. As soon as I was committed, like, that's the girl forever. That's my wife forever. All of a sudden, the girls I didn't think were attracted are now attracted. Mm. And it's not, Bo didn't change other than his commitments. Like I didn't get better looking, but I became more attractive because my commitments were attractive to those girls who I didn't think were attracted in the first place. Mm. You understand? Yeah. So commitment is attractive. That's why um, 
You can never take your eyes off of people who are fully committed to whatever they're doing. Even like you, you look at, um, if you're watching the Olympics, and I'm always taken by the little girls. They're, very, they're so young, the 13, 14-year-old gymnasts, right? And regardless if you're a male or you're a female, you, I, I, I dare you to try to take your eyes off of those little girls while they're competing, now, when they're not competing, you can kind of dismiss them. You can kind of look away and you can take in the rest of the world. But when they're competing yeah. on a balance beam or on a high bar or on a floor exercise, I dare you to try to look away. You can't look away because all you see is commitment. All you see is, even though they're 13, you see over half of their life has been dedicated to this one moment in time since they were six or seven. And they've sacrificed everything. They just sacrificed the prom and dating and food at times and freedom, and they've dedicated it to this balance beam for this one moment. You can't look away from that. Now think about that in your own life. You know, people go to me, Bo, I wanna be in a committed relationship. So the first question I ask is, okay, let's talk about your commitments. What are you committed to? And they go, well, nothing. I'm totally free. And I go, well, no, no wonder you don't, you're not right. in a great relationship. Because no one's attracted to somebody who's cool and free and who has no responsibilities. But you can remember a time when that was cool. That was kind of attractive. That's interesting. Right? Not anymore. Attraction is attractive. Commitment is attractive. So I, my single friends, I always say, hey, Get committed. Watch, watch what happens. Mm, that's powerful. I love those examples too. Uh, another thing you did was you reframed this terminology hard work, which has changed as mm, well. Yeah. Because for me, even when you mentioned it in the book, I conjure up this thought of like wearing a hard hat. Swear, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm at the construction <laughs> site, yeah, yep. you know, on the, yep. the jackhammer or whatever. But you have redefined it and really brought forth what it really means. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it is. You know, I do use the word hard work, but I made sure in the book that I that I preface it by saying, hey, I'm not talking about digging ditches, right? I'm not talking about doing work you don't want to do. You're talking about the, the most precious work there is in the world, which is bringing your vision into existence. Yeah. That's the kind of work that you can do 12, 13, 15 hours a day and you don't know you're worked. You, you're tired, you need to recover, but you're like, damn, I'm, I'm gonna recover, I'm back at this. Because you love it because it's your vision and your expression. I think one time I was on a stage, Sean, and I, it was a big stage, you know? It was like with a prominent dude and I was up there and I was new, you know, to the world of, uh, you know, uh, the stage world. And I'm up there and I'm talking about hard work like it's the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And after I came off stage, the guy who owned the stage uh, came up to me and he said, Bo, hey, you, I, you can't say that. You use the word hard work, use that term a lot. And I go, yeah. Mm -hmm. I go, that's what it takes. And he goes, you can't use that with my people. They don't like that word. We've polled it. We've studied it. <laughs> I'm wow. like, wait a minute. You polled a word? You studied a term called hard work and you found out that your audience, <laughs> it makes me laugh, you found out your audience doesn't like that word so you don't say it anymore? So am I, if, 
So if they're going to be the best in the world, just if I can eliminate hard work, they can still get there. We, we cannot get there. Okay, it's not going to happen. And so now I, I have just found out on that day that hard work has this negative connotation, much like co competitor or competition has a kind of a bad connotation these days, or domination, or the word predator, all these words that I love what they mean. I love what they really represent. And I use them in the book, but they've been turned upside down by our culture to mean bad things. Yeah. You know, these yeah, words have been absolutely. flipped upside down. And I think the word hard work uh, or struggle is, is part of that. You know, I remember my son when he was Axel when he was like five or six. I remember instead of reading him like, you know, fairy tales to bed, I would read him like uh, great books from like Daniel Coyle, right? Like I would be reading the yeah, the, the talent, talent code, code to yeah, him, yeah. and I remember this sentence in the talent code where um, it said, "If you're in the, if you're in in if you have interest in being world class, then struggle." is a biological necessity. And I remember reading him that over and over nightly when he was six, seven, eight. And now it's he's memorized it so that struggle is not a bad word to him. Struggle is a biological necessity if you're interested in going all the way. Yeah. Cool? That, that's, that's how I think of these words. And kind of, because I just think the culture's really flipped them. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you made the statement in the book uh, something to the effect of once you decide to be the best, you just guaranteed yourself a bunch of obstacles. Uh, yeah. And when when I read it in that context, it's just like, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's another word, right? People, oh, I hate obstacles. Oh, really? Well, um, when I was nine, right, I was just a kid, right? So I'm walking around the neighborhood throwing rocks at windows and stuff, doing the stuff we did, right? Not a care in the world. Not an obstacle in the world. And then I made this declaration, I'm going to be the best safety in the world. And I just, a nine-year-old just created a bunch of obstacles for his life. Which, that's the only way to get better is obstacles. Because they, they fortify you. They make you strong. And they're of your creation. So that Bo, the nine-year-old, could have gone... I think I'll just throw rocks at windows for the rest of my life, right? And I'll have no obstacles except the police or, you know, that <laughs> right, right. stuff will come. That stuff will come eventually, right? But I had this carefree life. And then I set a bunch of obstacles in place in front of me, which fortified me many years later to be strong, fast, and be elite at what I wanted to do in my life. So obstacles are actually necessary part of the game that you're playing. And I'm the one who created those obstacles, right? I didn't have to have them. I created them. And so if I created them, I can move through them. I can circumvent them. I can hurdle them. I can go under them. I could overpower them. And I'm going to get my butt kicked too. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. A bloody nose is going to happen. A few knee surgeries are going to happen. It's all part of the process, but it gets you... Um, to a place in your mind where you're unstoppable because you know, regardless of the injuries, regardless of the bloody noses, regardless of the naysayers, that you can achieve whatever you want to achieve for the rest of your life, not just football, 
whatever you choose. Yeah. Oh man, I love it so much. So in the book, you break it down uh, into these four stages, declaration, preparation, acceleration, and domination. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things we've discussed thus far are hitting those two areas in a big way. And you dive in even deeper in the book. But acceleration and domination. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that and maybe cover some key points and what to look towards. I mean, when I heard those words, they really were exciting for me personally. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. me too. I, I, I love those words. And acceleration is really about, uh, I, I've always, I've, I've been infatuated with speed my whole life. I've been around really fast people in my life. I've always loved it. I always wanted to be fast and worked really hard to be fast. And it's a, it was just a huge advantage, Sean, if you could outrun everybody on the court and you knew it, and you could outrun everybody on a field, you had a huge advantage because you can move faster than anyone else. You had a huge advantage. You knew you had the, the edge to win that, that particular competition. So I've always been obsessed with it. The, and, and acceleration is a huge part of speed, right? Here's the truth about speed. So if you take Usain Bolt, right? So that's the fastest human being ever to walk the face of the earth, right? So he's not just the fastest man in the world. He's the fastest man in the history of the world. So think of how many people have been on this planet. So he's the fast, that like freaks me out when I think about that. Uh, a good buddy of mine is a guy named Leroy Dixon, right? So he's my son's speed coach and my daughter's. Um, great dude. He's the seventh fastest man in the history of the world. So he's beat Usain Bolt three times and won a championship against him in the four by 100 relay. Um, but he's the seventh fastest of all time. Now, uh, Axel and I just went to a movie with Leroy like two nights ago and we trained with him every week. And when you see him, he just looked like a regular dude, right? But man, it is when he moves, he moves. So when I'm around Leroy, I'm always asking him about speed. And he says this about Usain Bolt. So Usain Bolt can't run faster than Leroy. And I'm like, what do you mean? Even though he's the fastest man of all time and Leroy's the seventh fastest man of all, he goes, what you're seeing is an optical illusion. He can't run faster than me, but he decelerates at a slower pace than me. Isn't that cool? So think about that for a second. So as if you and me are racing Usain Bolt right now and we start off off the blocks and we're pretty even, right? You and me are going to decelerate at a faster pace than he is. You can only hold top speed for a few yards, which is like, you know, I think he reaches a speed of like 32 miles an hour, something crazy like that. But he can only hold it for a few yards. So far, that's, that's what the human body can do. And then everybody starts decelerating. So when you say you see somebody passing, when you see Usain Bolt passing all those guys at the end of the race and then breaking the tape and winning, he's not passing them. They're slowing down faster than him. Crazy to think about, right? Mm -hmm. So think about acceleration in this way. Think about being the best in the world at something. So if you and me want to be the best, pick a subject. Violin player. If we want to be virtuoso violin player, which is totally doable for you and me in this lifetime. If we choose that, we got to stay 
healthy enough, long enough, vibrant, long enough to train all those hours at something that a lot of people have a head start on us with. Yeah. The violin, what, do you play the violin? Absolutely not. Yeah, right, me neither, <laughs> right? Um, so you and me are gonna have to bust our ass, and science has proved this over and over, this isn't just me talking about this, that we can reach virtuoso status at playing the violin, but we have to be healthy enough and we have to get the, and you know better than anyone, we have to get enough sleep. You know the, the one thing that separates the greatest violin players in the world from the second tier? You know what it is? What is it? One hour of sleep a day. More. Incredible. Isn't that crazy? It makes sense though. <laughs> of Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's powerful. <clears throat> Five hours of sleep a week more than the second tier. That's it. Yeah. They all have the same hours of training. Isn't that wild? This is why I like to use the word acceleration because you and me, if that's our commitment, which it could be, we have to decelerate at a slower pace than everybody else, meaning we have to be the healthiest, we have to be the best at recovery, and we have to be able to train the hardest with the greatest violin coach. Yeah. Wild, right? That's what acceleration is all about. It's not that you're passing everybody. It's that they're decelerating because guess what they're going to do? Guess what everyone else who's got this commitment of being the best violin player in the world? They're going to go like this. Oh, man, I worked hard yesterday. I'm just going to phone it in today. I'm not going to practice deliberately. I'm not going to put myself outside the comfort zone. I'm going to stay up late, maybe have three beers and a pizza. And now you and me got them because now they're decelerating and you and me are decelerating at a slower pace than them. Yeah. And given year after year after year after year of, their, uh, of that acceleration, you and me are standing at the top. Yeah. That's cool. That's a cool life. That's a life worth living, like an honorable life. I think instead of, instead of those five guys that I think about every day who are great dudes, I love them, great dudes. But one day, they, at the end of their life, they might, and they might even be feeling this today, I don't know, is they have to sit with regret and go, damn, that little sucker. He was smaller than me. He was slower. He wasn't, he wasn't as tough as me. He just didn't quit. He just hung in there. Yeah. He just didn't decelerate at a, fast pay, at a faster pace than me. That's it. That's a cool life, right? So that's the acceleration piece, the domination piece that you asked about. And, you know, a lot of people go, well, Bo, you can't say the word dominate or domination. I'm like, why? That is such a great word. And my, I, I never am talking about dominating other people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dominating your own shortcomings, Dominating the, the, the space that you occupy. You dominate what, you, what your vision is. You dominate yourself. It's never, like even when, you're, even when you think of domination, you think of two boxers or two MMA fighters who are badasses and they're in the ring and it looks like they're, tr they're dom trying to dominate one another. In reality, for them to get in that ring and be a world champion, think of their own mind that they had to dominate to even reach that level. 
Think of their time that they had to dominate. Think of the space they had to dominate, the nutrition, the sleep, the recovery, the coaching, the training that was self, they had to dominate their own mind to be able to get there. And now they're in the ring expressing that domination. And when those two great dominators meet each other, it's a beautiful fight, right? It's something that we all, it's an art form. That's what I mean by domination. And I also mean this. Um, what I have found every time I attempted to be the best in the world at a thing, regardless of the discipline, what I found is that a bunch of people came with me and a bunch of people helped me. I didn't do it by myself, never. A bunch of people helped me, people that you would never think would help you, came out of the woodwork to help you, to help me. And then a bunch of friends and like-minded people kind of saw me doing it and goes, well, if he's going there, I'm certainly going there too because he didn't have any more talent than me. Look at him or whatever. And they came with me. That's cool. You know, when you start to, when you start to um, dominate your own space that you're in, what you find is that it raises everybody that wants to go. Now, some people will exclude themselves for sure, right? Like some people... Uh, maybe in competition with you in the podcast space, right? And they either compete with Sean. They go, Sean's good. I want to. I want to. I want to raise my level to his, or I want to surpass him. Well, that's good for Sean, yeah. and that's good for the world, right? But most people don't do that. They go like this: Oh, Sean's is good. I'll never catch him. I'll never uh, forget it. I won't even start. And so they've lost before they even began when they could have had an opportunity to make Sean's podcast better by competing with you. Yeah. That's a lost art. It's so lost, Sean, that even the most competitive, supposedly the most competitive people on our planet today, we would think, right, are the elite athletes, right? So you go, wow, <clears throat> they're really competitive. That's how they reach this level. But even them... You'll, if you notice lately, trending, what kind of trends in pro sports now is stacking teams. So what you tell me, what competitor would get every good player in the league on their team? So what they're actually doing is asking less of themselves as a competitor so that they can dominate and win championships. Well, I don't need... I, I can't, as a competitor, I don't understand that mindset. As a competitor, I would go, they can build their team. I'm going to beat them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask more of myself. I'm going to ask more of my teammates around me and let's, let's beat them, these guys who want to stack their teams. So I think when that happens, basketball, football, whatever the sport is that that happens, they keep stacking the team, the basketball or football goes like this it slowly ticks down because the only things that can get better are the competitive things, right? So if we're not, if we're, even our most competitors won't compete, won't demand more of what they're made of, the sport suffers. So the only reason Usain Bolt is so fast is he got guys nipping at his heels every day, a younger guy's coming up. And he's fast, and he wants to beat Usain Bolt's butt, which now makes track and field attractive to right. us. Right. 
instead of the opposite. Incredible. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Competi- we, we actually thrive off of it, and we don't think about it. It's there in our day-to-day lives yep. to take advantage of. You know, So it's so powerful, man. There's, again, there's so many powerful <laughs> insights in this book and just like switches that we can just flip in our mind and start to live our lives appropriately, which is to be the best. Yeah. And so I'm just grateful that you put all this together for us. I know that it was a labor of love, of course, to make this happen. And uh, when this is coming out, folks are going to have about a week, maybe a week and a half to actually pick up a bunch of bonuses by pre-ordering the book. Great. So can you tell everybody about that? Yeah. yeah, That I would do because uh, uh, the people listening now will be pre-ordering the book, right? So uh, lucky for you that that, that we got a bunch of pre-order uh, bonuses, really cool stuff, stuff that we're doing today, like walking them through the process of becoming the best in the world at what they want to become the best in the world at. And there's guides and the free guides and and trainings and, and groups that you get to spend time with me and I train you at these very things that you and me are talking about today. Because look, here's the thing. My dad was a regular dude, right? He uh, He's a... F- farm, he's a rancher, he's a cowboy, right? He didn't talk a lot, right? But when he spoke, uh, it meant something. And the, the, the most vivid thing I remember him ever saying is that I was the best and my brother was the best and my sisters were the best. And then all our friends, whoever was around, they were the best. And he saw greatness in people that they probably couldn't see for themselves. At least I couldn't see it for myself. The book is written from that place. You're going to be coached from that place by me. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like absolutely. so so all the bonuses lead to that. Like I I'm able to see what my dad sees in people and speak it until you have the wherewithal to live it into existence. And that's all he did for us and that's all I do for the people that I work with and the people who who are going to be reading this book. Awesome, man. So yeah. where can people grab those bonuses? Yeah, they'll, they'll go to boeasonbook.com. boeasonbook.com. They pre-order the book, and then you've got a bunch of bonuses coming yeah. at you. Yeah. So go do that right now. Go pick up those bonuses. Um, you've proven it across different fields. And just seeing you multiple times today, you know, speaking, there's really nobody better, man. Like mm. you're, you're incredible. The way that you move your body on the stage along with the stories that you share and the insights is really something to to see. And I'm um, just grateful that you put all this together for us to absorb some of that and to remember who we are. Yeah. So thank you so much for hanging out with me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it, Sean. Thank you, man. Awesome, awesome. Everybody, thank you for tuning into the show today. I, I know you got a lot of value out of this episode. And one of the biggest takeaways for me personally was when he talked about along the, the lines of acceleration is not just what you see on the surface, it's also decelerating slower than everybody else. And he mentioned uh, sleep in there, in that context. And in the book, he even mentions this, Tom Brady and LeBron James, arguably two of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time in their respective fields. And sleep is a part of their regiment. So that enables them to decelerate slower than everybody else who's out partying. And that reminds me of my son and I, we just watched Baywatch the other day, the remake, you know, with The Rock and Zac Efron. And Zac Efron, his character Brody in the, in the movie, 
He won two Olympic golds, but on that day when he was supposed to perform and win that third gold potentially, he was out partying the night before and he ended up puking in the pool during the uh, competition. Super gross, but I like the movie, you know, Uh, I thought it was really good. But um, just keeping all these things in context, because your performance isn't just about going out and breaking down all the barriers, you know, running your head into stuff. There's going to be times where you uh, recalibrate. And when you hit these obstacles, sometimes it's going to knock you back a few notches. But being able to brush yourself off, readjust, learn the lesson, and keep moving forward. And so, again, definitely pick up this book. It's one of my favorite books of the year. There's no plan B for your A game. Go grab those bonuses. It's boeasonbook.com. That's right. And grab those right now. And we've got some epic powerhouse episodes coming your way. So make sure to stay tuned. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it out with your friends and family on social media. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model. And what's your Instagram handle? What is my Instagram handle? Boeason21. Boeason21. At Boeason21. And his son Axel just made a voice appearance on the show. (laughs) Tag us. let, Let everybody know what you thought of the episode. I appreciate you so much for tuning in. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.